You start out in a good architecture school in your hometown, but you start to get restless. You grew up in Winnipeg, but you want to see more and do more. You want to experiment with learning and working in a new setting, at a new school and workplace far from here. Today on Prairie Design Lab, we talk with three people who left to do just that. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, a podcast coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. We call episode 13 simply HOF after the three cities to which these architecture-obsessed people went. Kent Mundell is in Hong Kong. Dale Wiebe is in Oslo, Norway. Ainsley Johnson is in Frankfurt, Germany. They all joined me on Zoom just before Christmas. I began by asking Ainsley Johnston what attracted her to Frankfurt. Only the school. <laughs> Frankfurt, not so much. I mean, in the end, Frankfurt ended up being a nice city for what it was, uh, but the school uh, was the only thing that brought me there. And for good reasons, it's a really nice place. I understand from doing a lot of reading about you that one of your specializations is writing about architecture. Yes. What were you doing in Frankfurt? Were you doing the same thing? In the end, yeah. Um, but as my own sort of work, uh, not really as part of the school work. But I ended up getting a bit lucky with a position at a magazine that's out of Switzerland for over a year now, maybe a year and a half. So I ended up doing a lot more writing, kind of related with my schoolwork or what my friends were doing or what my other colleagues at Cartha were doing. Um, so it all ended up sort of working together a little bit. And Cartha is the name of the magazine. Yeah. Let's uh, head off to Hong Kong now, shall we? <laughs> uh, I love being able to say that. And uh, Kent <laughs> Mundell is there. Hello, Kent. Hello. What attracted you to Hong Kong? Actually, kind of similar to Ainsley, ultimately, that there was a specific group of people that I wanted to study with here in Hong Kong. It's a practice that's kind of like embedded in the university called Rural Urban Framework. And they run like a design research lab within the university. And so ultimately I saw what they were doing was really something that I hoped to maybe be able to do back in Canada someday. And so the idea was to study with them, hopefully work with them, and then maybe learn from that for a while to then go back to Canada to continue a similar sort of practice. And so what exactly have you been doing in Hong Kong? Uh, so I, I went to do my master's at the Hong Kong University, and I also just recently finished uh, in, I guess, in the beginning of July or late June. And then since I've been now working with Rural Urban Framework since then. Okay, I need to ask you a lot more about Rural Urban Framework, but first I have to talk to Dale from Oslo. Dale, what attracted you to Oslo? Uh, I think initially it was uh, wanting to leave and uh <laughs> curious to explore something else so that um, box that had to be checked. And then once you kind of look out, your um, options are obviously really vast. And I was looking at schools in Europe that had no tuition fees. And then your box gets checked and you have uh, fewer options. And then Norway happened to be one of those places where there's no fees. And then there was a really good uh, program that had just started in the last 10 years and some teachers uh, whose books I had been reading. And so I thought it made sense to head to Norway. Um, so it's very practical. What's special about the programs at the school in Oslo? Uh, important because I'm a, a landscape architect. I did a master's in landscape architecture. So 
the school is based in urbanism rather than, let's say, like horticulture or science, which means you're tied to more into architecture. So uh, in the case of Oslo School, the studios are based with architects and landscape architects. So you're sharing a studio space versus, uh, let's say, in uh, Manitoba, you would be setting with just landscape architects in the same studio. So you're getting a really interesting environment. Uh, plus, the city uh, has really good cross-country skiing and these other types of things that you uh, come across as you live in a place. I understand you've been working with a firm in Oslo, in fact, a firm that works across various parts of Northern Europe, SLA. Mm-hmm, yeah, SLA started in Copenhagen, a Danish landscape architect named Stieg Lars Andersen. They're interesting, I'd say, really prominent office in, in Europe, especially in the Nordic countries. Uh, and their thing is to somehow reconstruct the notions of nature in the city. So planting schemes and urban spaces that have a lot of informality built into them. Informality, what's that mean? The planting and the geometry of the spaces are not interested in regular geometry. Say like a French park uh, would be really straight, clear clear geometry. This would be more interested in like uh, informal edges, informal planting, lots of native species, overgrown, and really interested in working with water and runoff water and naturally occurring things in the environment in those areas. Ken, I need to ask about, uh, what is it called, RUF, Rural Urban Framework? What is that exactly? Rural Urban Framework is the practice of the two principals there, uh, Joshua Volkover and John Lynn. And uh, the practice effectively focuses on on work in rural China, Mongolia, and now more recently in Kathmandu and Nepal. And um, it initially started when uh, Joshua and John had kind of discovered this emerging territory in rural China in these rapidly urbanizing cities where in the periphery of cities, there are often many of these gaps kind of left over from conventional top-down planning strategies where they found some kind of opportunities for a kind of unconventional way to practice architecture. One of the things that I really found the most interesting about the practice is that they're really proactive in the way that they uh, go about making a building or a project happen in that they go and they, they seek the funding often, they reach out to the communities in order to kind of engage with, with what they might need. And this is all kind of like in contrast from the, the conventional uh, practice of waiting for a client to come to you, right? And so the, the idea of design for rural urban framework kind of involves this idea of how do you make a project happen rather than just like what a specific brick detail is or something. And so I think it was like this concept for me was something that was really drew me to them. Angeli, what did you learn at U of M that prepared you for what you're doing now? The architecture stream anyway, was I found a lot about ended up being about becoming a bit weird and like out weirding somebody or like really I don't know the more obscure you could get I guess the deeper that you could get in projects and work and then in did that appeal to you yeah yeah Yeah. you could kind of explore very reaching branches within architecture and then speak about them as spatial uh, which was really an interesting way to approach work which I think really set me up for work at SAC, which is the architecture class at Chitelo Shule. 
because it's placed within an art school, it's at the beginning, a lot of architects pretending to be artists and then realizing you don't actually want to be an artist. And then you go back to architecture all within two years. It was that sort of same environment that you're really reaching out to different parts of the discipline and other disciplines and into different tools and technologies and then speaking about them as spatial. So I think in that way, I was set up for it from you then. A great deal of your interest is in the writing about architecture. Now it is. I guess it was, but in the school, it was definitely more an experimental approach using new technologies, machine vision, usually in virtual reality, augmented reality and mixed reality, and then using all these different softwares as if they already belong to the architecture discipline and then using them as kind of a laboratory for testing new ways of talking about space, designing, creating space, anything like that. So in my case, um, it was both an act of experimenting, but then at the same time, um, being able to write about that. I'd like to hear from all of you about the architectural design planning culture of the communities in which you've been living. In Oslo, Dale, what's the culture of architecture there? There is a very early appreciation sacredness to the forest. So the forest in Oslo sits on top of a hill and which is within reach from the city center, maybe 30 minutes by the public transit. And so the forest almost uh, influences the daily life uh, in the city. And the forest has um, some large lakes near it. And then these lakes have streams that come down through the city. So the forest and those natural spaces come into the city. So the, actually, like the very first sort of feelings of Oslo are actually through these streams and these green fingers that go through the city that create amazing spaces and also then influences the day-to-day life of people and going for a ski or for a walk is, um, it's not like a thing that's special, it's not an event, but it's actually a habit to how you live every day. But then I think also there's been some very interesting experiments in the last hundred years in the city. So you can walk through the city and see areas that have been converted from industrial factories from the 1920s and 30s. So you had that sort of fabric and then on top of that, you have modernist plans from the 60s, which are a bit further outside the city, but they sit on top of lawn. And then you have even more recent experiments. So you have a fabric of these different types of housing that I think is really refreshing to see coming from Winnipeg, where Winnipeg kind of had a very, each area was very distinct and it was also new and, and kind of based around car. The options for experimentation were just not really present in the housing and in the, in the city life, I think. Can tell me a bit about your experience in Hong Kong. How big is that city? Remind me. Hong Kong is 7 million people. The land is actually mostly rural. The city is like quite focused into like a small percentage of the space in Hong Kong on an island in a little part of the mainland. And then uh, there's you know, much of this rural territory. And the work that you do with RUF, the Rural Urban Framework, mm-hmm. does that actually take you to Nepal and take you to Mongolia and the places where RUF is working? Typically, there's a lot of travel involved with RUF, but because of, I've joined during uh, the COVID period, uh, we haven't done any traveling other than uh, the work in Kathmandu in Nepal um, began when I was a student a year ago where I was, I was a student of the studio. 
and um, kind of began that research project. And it's something that we've been able to kind of take into the practice. So I was, I was able to visit Nepal for that, but we're really kind of waiting for things. Most of the time we're spending right now is on a project in Mongolia. Really, we're kind of waiting for things to open up there for us to be able to go. And so kind of checking, checking vaccine updates all the time, but definitely kind of unfortunate to be missing out on that opportunity right now. I understand that Mongolia is a region that is developing really rapidly and has a lot of architectural needs. Is that what you're experiencing? It is growing rapidly. However, um, so despite that growth, there's quite a lot of instability economically. And so it limits some of the possibility for development, like specifically uh, infrastructurally for housing. And so what that means is that like developers, like conventional developers aren't really interested or they're not willing to take the risk to develop the necessary housing for specifically like the periphery of the city in an area called the Burr districts. And so what we're working on is like more of an incremental development approach that can like introduce this infrastructure and the housing more incrementally as, as families and communities have the finances and as their finances grow, then they can grow the housing as they need. What do people want there in terms of housing in Mongolia? One of the really important details about that story is that typically an issue with with housing is that uh, in in other regions, there's an issue of land in order to get housing. And that's not the case in Mongolia. Everybody has land. And so a a fear or concern would be that developers often come in and offer to take the land in exchange for like an apartment or something. This is uh, something that we're effectively trying to avoid. And so what's like essential for this proposal is that the, the development can happen in place instead of moving communities away from where they're currently living, right? One of the like, really critical priorities is to develop in situ rather than depending on like resettlement. Ainsley, what's the architectural culture that you experienced in Frankfurt? Frankfurt is a bit of a funny place in Germany, I think, because actually a lot of Germans are a bit wowed by the skyline there. And I remember getting there and thinking it looks like a bit of a toy town. Like it's all really close together, all these high rise buildings, and they're all bunched together. And depending where you're at on the river, they're more layered or not. So then they start really dispersing and you realize how small it is. I mean, it's the financial center of Germany. So there's a lot of glass high rises. So I thought that was a bit funny. And I came into the city actually thinking it was quite ugly, actually. But then after living there and after moving apartments, I saw a lot of the sort of details of the city and started liking it a lot more. In terms of the design culture there, that's a bit hard to say because... There's maybe like one architecture office there that's doing really interesting work, Schneider Schumacher. But other than that, it's a bit hard to get your hands into some inter- interesting projects. So a lot of people leave from my studies anyway. People are like going to Berlin or getting work in more residential firms and that sort of thing. Or people are doing something completely different, uh, like in stage design or Um, researching, like getting different grants for projects and sort of staying more close to the art world than they are the architecture world. I think that's sort of the culture that we have around the school anyway. 
I'm in conversation with three former University of Manitoba architecture students as they describe their studies and work overseas. Ainsley Johnston is in Frankfurt, Kent Mundell is in Hong Kong, and Dale Weeb is in Oslo. Now, back to our conversation. What was the transition like from being a kind of experimental thinking student and practitioner here? Because I know that some of you worked with In the Middle, the firm here. What was the tr- that transition like? I think uh, ever since it's like the first couple of years of university, I think the hours have been pretty much the same kind of throughout. I think it's always been somewhat intense. I remember one of the first people I ever worked for said that it's really like as much as you put in is the, is the amount that you get out. And so it's, we kind of put in the time because you enjoy the work. As far as like that kind of time and like the life balance, I think it's quite similar. In terms of the transition from in the middle to, to now, like technically in the middle still exists. Where We had a phone call on Sunday. So <laughs> I, I think it's just a little bit dormant since Dale and I have been away. And then also um, one of our other team members has been, was, was traveling for a year and another has been starting a family and things. And so it's something that we talk about really actually wanting to continue. And so I think it's not so much kind of moving away from that rather than maybe trying to gain some experiences in order to hopefully kind of almost like restart potentially, or it's, it's something that we've been speaking about for some time. What language do you work in in Hong Kong? Uh, English, because of the work uh, all over, like often like phone, phone calls are happening around me in, in Mandarin and Cantonese, depending, but uh, I'm ashamed to say that I don't speak, I don't speak either. I used to have a Mongolian employee who could speak Mongolian, which was really extremely helpful for these kind of uh, resident interviews, and, I, and we're kind of in the process of trying to hire someone in Mongolia, especially for the, the, this moment in COVID. And Dale, are you working on your Norwegian? <laughs> we work in Norwegian, so I, I should be flu- I should be much better than I am. But there's also the challenge of Danish employees. Many people speak Danish in the office, when we were at the office, of course. And so I had this challenge of trying to decipher what was Norwegian and what was Danish. And I have to say, I can now tell the difference. <laughs> but I, I'm not so good at uh, speaking Norwegian but I'm reading Norwegian, uh, I guess, reasonably well to, to work with drawings and things. But um, yeah, not there yet. Is that an impediment to your progress with the firm? Yeah, I guess it, it would be critical that I learn Norwegian to take on a project lead role. Uh, but for now, I guess my position is one that has me receiving tasks more than determining tasks. If I wanted to be here for 10 years, it would be essential to learn Norwegian. Angel, when I was looking at some of your background stuff, I noticed that and I'm wondering if this is correct. You're doing some writing for Herzog and Demiron? Yeah, I will be uh, in, starting in January. Yeah. And what will that involve? We will see. Um, <laughs> it was kind of a long application process with them. And in the end, that this was the best position that they put forward. Uh, so I kind of worked with them in a way to put them put that together. So actually one of the questions in the interview was, what would you do here if you were hired here? What would your role be? So I think that was an interesting question to have in an interview that I would just kind of make that up. But I think it's going to be a lot of maybe writing for their projects. The team that I'm working with, they do the publications and exhibitions and archiving for the firm. 
uh, I suspect that it will be doing some of that work, some of the media relations work, and then also having a new point of view on their archive because they have quite a substantial archive there, uh, like physical archive building. It's really impressive. Yeah, I think it'll be both writing and research and editorial and media relations type of work. Will you be working in Basel for them? Yes, I'm going to Basel. I'm curious from the perspective of what you've all learned in the various cities in which you work, what advice would you have for other architecture students from the U of M who are thinking about studying and working overseas? Uh, Dale, what would you say? I would say don't, don't think too much about it. If you have an intuition to do something, just, uh, just try it. What do you have to lose? And if you get stuck there for longer than you think, then you just make most of it. If you have the feeling of doing it, just go do it. Now, you said your firm works in both Danish and Norwegian. It, in terms of the school where you studied, what language is the language of study? It was all in English. So it's an English master's, but they have a bachelor that is in Norwegian. And you said that university education in Norway is free. Is it free for Canadian? It's free. Uh, yeah, it's a public school. So it's, a, it's completely free. You pay something like a library fee, which is similar to like 50 euros. So it's not quite free. Amazing, Amazing yeah. says, says Ainsley. Yeah. Is that a bit different, Ainsley, in Frankfurt? The, the, the cost of study there is it's not the cost of a library card? Not at all. <laughs> it's comparable to Canada. Like it's not too much. But um, it's definitely not free. <laughs> and what about for you, Kent, in, in Hong Kong? What was the cost of your education at Hong Kong University? More than the Canadian tuition, typically. Um, that being said, at many different universities, there are always scholarships and things available that can lighten that load to a degree. But uh, that being said, it also... Um, still significantly less than some of the other exceptional schools around the world, whether it's in the UK or in the United States. So. And Kent, what was it like to get accepted at Hong Kong University? What kind of a challenge was that? Oh, it's been a while since I was accepted. I can't really remember what I had uh, felt at the time. I think I remember it feeling like relief. <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting, I guess, but uh, it, was, it was a relief. I remember um, getting in. I was in Seoul at the time, and I think I, I didn't necessarily know what the next steps were going to be. And so, especially when working back home in, in Winnipeg, things were always kind of like a couple months at a time. And so it was really exciting to get to start to think like a little bit longer in the future and get to kind of plan this work ahead and get to look forward to something that was technically a little bit more stable. Uh, Ainsley, in, in what ways has your study overseas affected your plans for the future? I guess it completely set up what I'm doing next in the same way as Kent. I've kind of just been going forward in sort of small increments. I decided to move to Montreal to work to that. Actually, I just decided to move to Montreal for no reason. And then I just got a job and then decided I was done there. And then kind of like what Dale said, with the intuition, with the school, uh, I didn't know anyone that went there or anything. I just... Also, what Dale said earlier, people just want to leave Winnipeg. <laughs> so you're kind of like, where can I go next? So this seems really interesting. And I think that I could really like it. And I'm ready for a change. That's what happened with Frankfurt. And then the people that I met there and the sort of relationships that I built at that school, as well as the more, 
I guess, narrowed interests of what I'd like to do and study for later all came out of that program. Everything just jumps off the thing before in a way. Dale, for you, you've got an interesting job in Oslo. What do you see as the future as it unfolds for you? Something I'm quite interested in is merging sort of like a professional design practice with teaching practice. I've had my hand in uh, teaching some studios at the uh, school here, just uh, like 20% roles along with working for SLA. Now I'll be doing that again uh, coming up in January. So my goal is to merge these two things, this academic world, this really practical professional world. Uh, but I think they can get into each other really nicely and they make each thing richer. So that's the goal. But um, I feel a bit like six months at a time or two months at a time. So you kind of see what happens in front of you. You apply for a thing. Maybe you get it. Maybe you don't. If you do, you just go forward and, and figure out the next move as it comes. For you, Kent, does that sound like the future for you as it comes, as, as Dale mentioned? New opportunities come and you have to continue with them. No, it's exactly right. Uh, eventually, I think, like, or at least hopefully, sometimes you hope the planning increments become a little bit longer and longer um, so that you can balance your personal life along with this work life to a degree. But, uh, and it also kind of comes out of some personal desire too. I think that was exciting for a while to be like one month at a time. And now that excitement is starting to like wear off and it's nice to like, like I was living out of a backpack probably for the last four years, to be honest, like the two years in Seoul and the two years in Hong Kong. And so um, we do hope that um, that pace starts to at least stretch out a little bit. It doesn't need to end, but Angel, you were shaking your head as Kent was talking about the lack of joy in the month to month thing. Is that true for you? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I totally agree with that. Um, I am also looking forward to having something that stretches a bit longer. Kent, I, I'd like to ask if you're okay with me asking this. We hear a great deal out of China, particularly out of Hong Kong, about political transformation that's happening there. What encounters if any, do you have with that aspect of Chinese life? Before I came to Hong Kong, I didn't know a lot about the politics. And so maybe just to preface in case any um, listeners are a little bit unsure that there is like a this is a significant distinction, right, between Hong Kong and China. And so um, there's a difference between living here compared to living in the mainland, right? Um, that being said, the significant story the the year before covid kind of like about december 2019 to june 2019 was a period of protest and it was something that was pretty impossible to avoid for sure and it was something that was really emotionally tumultuous to observe and be a part of to a degree but at the same time it was really humbling because at the same time i knew that i was always quite secure relative to my colleagues who are hong kongers right and so any kind of danger that I ever felt that I was in or kind of lack of security, I could always go back to Canada. And I, it really made that quite apparent to me. It's always like a, an experience that's hard to really kind of, it's really difficult to put into words, I think. In terms of then, say, experiences in the mainland, um, uh, never any kind of feeling of danger, though, like that being said. Or I had, I had traveled across the border like during those periods of protests, and it would be a little bit unnerving, especially while there were some Canadians being detained, for sure. You don't know really what to expect. And there was a period when I was originally traveling to, uh, to Kathmandu 
I had got stuck in Lhasa, which is in Tibet, and it's kind of the landing right before you and kind of jumped to Kathmandu. And uh, Xi Jinping was in the Kathmandu airport and held up our flight. We ended up staying kind of like overnight and had our passports taken in Lhasa. I'm like taken on a bus a couple hours to some hotel. And that was, I think, one of the most kind of like unnerving experiences for sure, but also once you're kind of out of it, then like a nice story to tell. So this has been a really illuminating conversation. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Tony. Take good care. All of you, please. Bye-bye. Bye. Former university of Manitoba architecture students, Kent Mundell in Hong Kong, Dale Wiebe in Oslo, Norway, and Angelie Johnston in Frankfurt, Germany. Prairie design lab comes to you from the faculty of architecture at the university of Manitoba where those three started out. Our podcast builds on all that's been accomplished by the faculty and graduates of the first architecture faculty in Western Canada, founded 102 years ago. Special thanks to Jay Sung Chan and Jason Shields of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you're in Winnipeg, you can catch us each Wednesday morning at 11.30 a.m. on UMFM Radio 101.5 FM. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. Thanks for joining us this week. See you next week.